Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. Today, we're going to take a look at the vexing, troublesome, and ever-present problem of cybersecurity. How safe are we? How can we be safer? What is happening? And what is the latest initiative from the administration say about our cyber readiness? I have three extraordinary guests, and I'm glad to bring them to you. They are Mark Matei uh, of 1898 and Company, Victor Atkins of the same company, and from the Idaho National Laboratory in, as you would expect, Idaho, we're glad to welcome Andrew Bachman. Uh, Victor, what is the state of play in cybersecurity? Well, uh, thanks first for having me on. I, I think the state of play today is that uh, the threat is advancing. I think we're literally only starting to see the beginning of what cyber warfare is going to look like in the world today. And as a result, uh, because of events that have actually happened where you know operational technology and control system environments and critical infrastructure around the world has actually been attacked, uh, we're starting to see the response. You know, the we see more research into these kind of threats. We see more advancements in cybersecurity in the industry, for instance. Uh, and then we just saw the national cyber strategy that came out from the administration, which, you know, thankfully mentioned operational technology and the need to secure these control system environments. And I believe that uh, what's driving all of this is the threat. Uh, we wouldn't be talking about this today. We wouldn't be talking about it, you know, at the level of the White House if there wasn't a severe threat that we need to be worried about. Uh, Mark, maybe you would uh, explain to our viewers and listeners operational technology. Most of us know about IT, information technology, but could we get a grip on occupational technology, OT? Yeah, well, uh, operational technology, um, it basically is all of the uh, automation industrial control systems that is outside of normal business uh, enterprise systems. Um, so those are the things that um, uh, run the water system. Uh, they you know run power. They do oil refinement, run pipelines, uh, all our manufacturing plants. All of those automated systems are are basically considered operational technology. Okay, and. Uh... That is uh, not quite the same as IT because it tends to be disrupted without our knowledge in the same way that IT, informational technology, I mean, if the airline booking system is messed with, we know it immediately. But if the uh, butter making factory at the farm is messed with, we don't know about it until we get bad butter. Well, you know, that I mean, that could be true, but there's also... Um, real-world, real-time systems that rely on operational technology and industrial control systems. Um, so uh, as an example, right, if a, if a uh, oil pipeline goes down or an energy um, uh, producer goes down, uh, we'll see that right away with, with the effects that, that that'll have in, in forms of brownouts and blackouts and all of the, uh, the impacts that that might have. I think it's important to notice that even as uh, Victor and Mark are describing OT operational technology, which also has uh, a couple synonyms, industrial control systems or cyber physical systems, you'll hear them described this way to differentiate from pure IT, that industrial companies do have a big dependency on their IT systems. The two most prevalent examples are the ones I hear the most 
are an aluminum manufacturer in the Nordics called Norsk Hydro, and uh, more recently, closer to home in the U.S., the Colonial Pipeline attack, ransomware attacks, where, from what we understand, the ransomware attack didn't go into the OT systems, which were segmented and separate. They did uh, brick or lock up the data and applications on the business side. And the, the, the problem for people that run manufacturing companies or oil natural gas companies in this case is that their playbooks for what they were going to build that day or transmit that day through the pipelines, that information was all on the IT side of the house. And so when they lost access to basically their recipes or their orders, uh, their pricing, they didn't know what to make. They didn't know what to deliver, whom to whom to deliver it. So it is important for people that are, even as we dis distinguish these two terms, we show that they're interlinked as well. What kind of uh, attack are we likely to see from a nation state attacking the U.S. or its facilities? Would it be OT, operational technology they go for, or would it be IT? Okay, thanks, Llewellyn. I think the, what you hear in the press a lot comes from what we were just describing, ransomware attacks that uh, generally go after IT systems because they're easier to reach and can tie up their applications and data, uh, which also can leave the people on the operational side, the manufacturing side, cooling their heels because they don't know what to do. They don't have their instructions for the day, so to speak. But when you talk about real nation state on nation state attacks, now we're talking about targeting critical infrastructure, the things that matter most. And that brings you to the usual suspect sectors, energy, which you can break out, electricity, oil, natural gas, and some others, water and wastewater treatment, communications, transportation, et cetera. That's the things that the national labs, and I understand uh, 1898 Burns McDonald, uh, that we're mainly going after is defense against those types of serious attacks. Victor, would you like to tell us what is 1898 and company and yeah. what is your role in cyber defense? 1898 and company is a consultancy global practice within a large engineering and architecture firm called Burns and McDonald, which has been around building critical infrastructure for over a hundred years. So that firm is mainly built uh, full of engineers who understand the systems that we're talking about here. We build and design them uh, for uh, multiple critical, critical infrastructure sectors. And 1898, you know, we're taking that knowledge and using it as a consultancy to try to inform and support executives or people within those organizations to improve their cybersecurity and industrial areas in particular. We are only really focused on operational technology environments and, uh, and help them reduce their risks. Uh, prior to my role here, I was a 15-year veteran of the, of the U.S. intelligence community. I ran Department of Energy's cyber intelligence mission, which was responsible for sharing information about these very threats we're talking about with the sector. And, you know, over the years, the one question that always came up was, you know, this is really interesting information, but, you know, what do we, what do, we do about it? You know, what, what does this mean to me and what can I take, what steps can I take in my company to really... Uh, drive down these risks or mitigate these threats. And so what we do here, one of the reasons I was excited to come to 1898 was to be able to leverage all that expertise they have within uh, their environment and their global practices in engineering, along with what I know about the threat, to be able to really provide practical solutions to these companies to try to reduce risks or even in some cases possibly even eliminate them through you know engineering practices that could uh, make them more resilient. Because I think the goal is 
they will be attacked. Our critical infrastructure is under threat. It's we've had ad, the adversaries are that we think about that have been talked about by the Director of National Intelligence, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran. They've been targeting our systems for at least a decade. And so when you think about the probability that we will be attacked, the goal uh, is to be resilient under an attack. So can we actually maintain our operations while we're dealing with a conflict? And I think that's really where we're trying to go next with our discussions with the utilities and all the sectors that, that matter that we work with. Uh, Mark, you have just launched a new program, a kind of one-stop shop for all cybersecurity, IT, OT, and anything else that might come up. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, we, we built out a capability to do 24 by 7 threat detection. So as Victor mentions, right, the, the threats are going to continue attacking the, um, the Department of Homeland Security uh, Critical Infrastructure Agency continues to put out advisories about the threats attacking. Um, as we as we look to help our utilities and, and really all our critical infrastructure clients, um, we'll be able to provide that 24 by 7 detection capability, as well as incident response and restoral type capabilities. So um, when we look at the, you know, the, the recent national uh, strategy for cybersecurity, um, you know, it has those pillars. It looks at from an OT uh, perspective, but we, you know, we dig deep into that to figure out, okay, how do we help that resiliency that, that Victor discussed? And how do we really get after the restoral um, when we know that something's going to happen. Um, th there are um, too many small utilities um, out there, whether it's water or uh, power, uh, that really don't have the capabilities or resources to uh, do things like you know, real-time detection or actually restore and, and be resilient uh, when something does happen. So um, those are the things that we're tr really trying to help with is help out all of those uh, utilities and, and critical infrastructure companies out there. Thank you. Andy, uh, INL is one of 17, I think, Department of Energy National Laboratories, an extraordinary national laboratory system that most people don't know very much about. Where does it fit in and what is its role in cybersecurity? I'd say there's uh, two main parts of the lab's mission that fit into this conversation. One is that its, its origins as a nuclear energy research and development and testing lab, you know, since back into the 50s. And that's ongoing today with the exploration of new advanced designs, which may help us generate power uh, that uh, doesn't produce carbon emissions uh, going forward. We'll see how that plays out in the coming years. But uh, born of those uh, experiences, watching automation and software technologies come into the nuclear sector, there were some colleagues of mine that, uh, decades ago that started to recognize that uh, cyber adversaries could ultimately reach some of these most important, most dangerous processes. And so started to imagine, started to articulate defensive measures that could hold those adversaries at bay, keep them out, far out of the systems. We refer to that today as cyber-informed engineering. And this is a process where from the very beginning of the design of a new system, all the way to the integration and fielding and operation of it, uh, the folks that are responsible for it are aware that it's living in a perpetually cyber contested world. It will never be safe from cyber attack. Uh, it will always have adversarial interest. And so we're looking 
and colleagues and partners, including 1898, who is a consequence-driven cyber-informed engineering licensed partner of INL, are looking at ways to use first principles engineering to defeat many of these emerging and likely future cyber threats. Um, what is the threat to the nation? Can we quantify it? Is it a, a, a you know, is there a 95% a chance that the grid will be attacked and much of the electric grid will go down, or is it a 5% chance? Uh, I've never heard a good definition of how how you, how big the threat is. You may not hear one today either, Llewellyn. I'm sorry to say that. Victor was starting to get at it when by saying that these uh, attacks uh, are ongoing, and uh, many of them are uh, automated and not particularly um, dangerous or particularly adept at penetrating our defenses or working their, their way in. Uh, some though that are well-financed, well-resourced uh, and by patient adversaries, those are the things that we really have most on our radar. I think to make people not feel too freaked out about this space is just that this is an ongoing thing now for the rest of our lives. As long as we use systems in our uh, government, in our infrastructure, in our homes, that have software and that do communications with the outside world, including the internet, just gonna always be a learning back and forth thing. And we're gonna to try to do the very best we can as defenders to keep the harms to ourselves, to our people, our towns, our government as minimal as possible. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to add that if you step back and think about it conceptually, these cyber uh, adversaries are well-resourced. They have the authorization of their national government. They uh, have been, they're very focused on being able to hold us at risk. And there's a really, there's a really good reason why. We're a democracy, right? They know, they, all of our adversaries understand that they can influence our national level policies by affecting things within the civil population. And the greatest way to do that is to affect critical services that people rely upon every day. It makes people potentially lose faith in the government or maybe have, lose appetite for heightened conflict. And so when you think about China and Russia in particular, over the last decade, the, uh, the Director of National Intelligence does an annual threat assessment. And since 2019, cyber with those adversaries in particular have been identified as having capable capabilities and intent to hold our critical infrastructure at risk at a time of their choosing. In fact, the terminology is they could cause localized temporary disruptions right now. And so you talk about the future and the evolution of that threat, if they're resourced, uh, they know they can have an effect. They know they can get the effect that they want, and they've been doing it for a long time, coupled with grid modernization and all the things that we're doing within our own power system to make it more digital and integrated. Uh, I believe we're only going to find a higher probability, more likelihood of a threat uh, of attacks that go on inside of our inside of our environment or overseas that we will observe. Uh, the, the thing that's nice about cyber is that when you see an effect, it gets reported. And so, you know, we can, uh, DHS and, and NSA both have issued a number of advisories over the years talking about these threats. Uh, and you only, if you read them all in, in succession, you only see um, a nonlinear escalation of capability and effect. And so I think that we can only, as things get a little more tense with China and with Russia, I think we're only can anticipate that that's gonna get worse. Right, all of these advanced persistent threats, the nation states, 
Um, they're going against the small utilities, water energy utilities. It's very hard when they're private companies, really, to be able to expect them to defend themselves against the nation state, right? You take a small department uh, of work, public works director and expect him to defend his water, uh, uh, wastewater treatment plant against uh, Russia or China. It, it's, it, it's extremely um, uphill battle for, for what they're trying to do. Mark, how do you defend? What, what does 1898 do? when to defend the client. Supposing I sign up with you and I've got some vulnerability, what do you then do? You, you don't send out trucks and men with guns. It's not that kind of defense, is it? No, um, I, I, a long time ago, I was in the army. So uh, understanding it from that aspect is one thing, but the um, uh, really what we're doing is analyzing the client's network for threat behavior. Um, we do that with special technologies. We find uh, events, anomalies that are in the networks um, and do analysis on those and, and really determine whether there's a threat um, that is uh, traveling throughout the network. So there are security events. We do the triage of those security events. We hunt in our clients' networks for the threats uh, on their behalf. And when we do find the clients, we'll escalate that and then we'll respond to those clients with uh, certain active response capabilities, uh, you know, containing the threats, blocking the threats, uh, those type of things. And then if there is a, a successful breach from one of our clients, we have incident response teams that are basically on standby, uh, much like many other organizations. Um, and we provide the, the immediate um, restoral and restoration um, in, in addition to the actual response to that cyber emergency. I find that word hunt very interesting. You hunt uh, the idea of, uh, of a, a somebody hunting uh, for cyber threats um, is very interesting. How do you do it? it yeah, so I, I, I like to equate it to um, uh, the, you know, the, the doorbell camera. Um, so a lot of people put doorbell cameras in their, uh, their homes, but they're not watching them 24 by seven. They don't know if, if the noise they hear or a person walking by or a car driving by is a malicious actor. Um, the things that we do, we look and see, hey, that noise sounded funny. It wasn't really a, um, you know, just a car back frying. That was actually a gunshot. Or the the the, um, the delivery person who's um, supposedly bringing packages is actually taking packages. Uh, th those type of things are are really scenarios that are anal analogous to what we do as far as looking in our clients' networks for uh, the enemy, the threat going through with you know traffic, network traffic, and stealing information, putting uh, malicious code on certain systems. Um, accessing or making changes to the the industrial control system devices such as PLCs, HMIs, if they get in there and get the code on there, um, then they'll have the ability at their will and time of pleasing to shut things down. And those are the things that we have to make sure we continue to hunt for so we can find those um, uh, before they actually decide to do something malicious. Andy, uh we talk about the grid, you're a grid strategist in your job description. Uh, it's huge interconnection of really thousands of, I think there are 3000 utilities. Most of them are connected in some way to the grid. Uh, 
What is the danger of, of contagion? One of the great strengths of our grid that makes it more defendable against cyber attacks and some other phenomena too, is its diversity. The fact that uh, while there are common manufacturers of equipment, common software packages that are used, uh, as you go across the 3,000 utilities that you cited and the 50,000 or so, by the way, water utilities that are out there, uh, they are all configured differently. Uh, they all do use different packages and different systems so that were one utility, small, medium, or large, to be successfully breached and an adversary were to take advantage of uh, misuse of some of their systems, that wouldn't necessarily cause a ripple effect. Diversity, again, is a strength when you're talking about defending uh, a large network from an adversary. And therefore, the flip side of that, the converse, is that lack of diversity could be a weakness, and we call that horizontal threat. An example not too long ago was uh, a software package by a company called Solar Winds, and Solar Winds was used by everybody, everybody in the government too, uh, for both network management and some cybersecurity functions. If you're an adversary, you value your own time, you uh, find out what everybody's using, you become smart on that system and how to exploit it, how to take advantage of it, and then you can have a one-to-many effect, something more like the contagion concept that I think you were uh, flying in the beginning of this question. Um, let me talk or ask you all, and anybody jump in and answer it. I've been intrigued by Stuxnet, which was an American program aimed at uh, 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 nuclear centrifuges in Iran, and apparently was very successful, but it's also a fine example of operational technology uh, <clears throat> being impaired without the operators knowing that it had been impaired. Uh, anybody like to explain Stuxnet? Well, my, my challenge with Stuxnet is that as a member of the, a former member of the intelligence community, there's a lot that I can't talk about uh, because of clearance issues that I would like to, that I really can't explain. But I would say, you know, whether it's Stuxnet or any, anything else along those lines, there are actually more re recent examples uh, that have been published uh, that have that have been tailored malware or tailored tools that are specifically designed by the adversary to target a specific system to create a specific effect. And one of those uh, actually happened in 2017. It was a Russian campaign targeting a foreign petrochemical plant. It actually it was called the Triton Trisis attack. And it was a very tailored uh, malware designed to attack the safety instrumented systems of a of the plant to essentially remove the protections on the plant. And for that to have worked, the adversary had to know all the everything about the plant, how it was configured, everything about that device so that they could create a very specific tool for it and then have access to it. That's a very Stuxnet like kind of operation. And it was designed specifically to create the effect of either tripping that plan offline or maybe creating unsafe conditions that could have hurt people. And one thing I'd like to say about it, Victor, um, we were encouraged to uh, jump in on each other, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is that uh, the reason that an adversary could go after a safety system in the scenario Victor described, the real world event Victor described, is that for convenience sake, we've decided to network everything to everything. Safety systems, the kind of the holiest of holy systems in a petrochemical plant, for example, 
um, those used to be kept separate from everything. Uh, they weren't on the same network. They used different protocols and technologies. So you could have confidence that even if someone did get onto your IT systems or maybe even some of your OT systems, still at the end of the day, they weren't going to own your safety systems. But uh, our species has a way of going after efficiencies. And we found that the more we can put everything on similar networks and similar systems, uh, the easier it's going to be. And we say that's on blue sky days, everything's working perfectly. However, the sky is not always blue. And when it turns uh, cloudy or gray or downright black, uh, it seems like we've given, I'm sorry, not seems, we've given adversaries pathways into harm us in ways that we, we didn't really intend, but now have to live with and well, defend. And I would follow up just to close the loop on this is that <clears throat> as we continue to integrate systems and things become more digital in the way that Andy just described, you now introduce the element of automation. So if an adversary can automate these tools so that they just have effects without anybody actually operating them, then you can actually, that's when you can, I won't say get the contagion scenario that you described, because again, that's very difficult given the diversity of systems, but as systems become less diverse and more independent, you open up the opportunity that that could be a real effect that an adversary could generate. And that's when you can start to get the widespread uh, kind of outages that people are concerned about. Mark, well, I'd like to ask you, where are the attacks coming from? You work uh, with these clients, utilities, oil refineries, etc. cetera. Uh, where are the attacks? Are they opportunistic? Are they people just having an adventure? Are they independent, uh, malicious people trying to raise money with phishing? Or are they nation states with true malice at heart? No, I, I think that's a, a, a great question. And, and it's really... Um, um, all of the scenarios that you've described, right? Um, there, there's uh, specifically nation states that are going after our critical infrastructure. Um, but there's also in most recent times, right? With, with the advent of um, crypto um, and the ability for um, hostage uh, takers, right? Ransomware operators uh, to take hostage our critical infrastructure and get money from that Bitcoin, um, that that has increased significantly because the the ease of way they can operate um, by being able to operate and and get uh, Bitcoin and and I, I don't remember the exact number but I think last year it was like 21 billion or something that the um, the the Bitcoin uh, ransomware um, was taken so it, it it really is all of the above but it's been made easier with the advent of crypto currency I mean good. Good, good on the FBI because they're doing a great job of tracking um, all of the the new and large um, the large um, uh, ransomware capabilities that are out there um, and all of those networks. But um, but that's that's been an advent um, just in itself. It, people are making a business out of it, and people are making a business out of selling their ransomware to the ransomware operators who are then going to be the ones that deploy that ransomware. So it's an entire infrastructure, um, whether you call it on the dark web or not, it's really an infrastructure for criminals to actually make money by holding our critical infrastructure hostage. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for a very informative half hour. Uh, until next week, cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. Full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your pocket.